I would invite you to turn with me to John the 17th chapter. It's one of those monumental chapters in God's Word in, in, in the Gospel of John, which is monumental in and of itself. John 17, 1-5. Hear these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having completed the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, Father, help us to honor your word by receiving it. Father, help us to tremble before your truth, knowing that it is a word that comes to us from heaven down into this place where we now dwell Down into these lives we now live. You speak the Word through Your Word, the Son, to grip our hearts, to awaken us from death, to breathe life into these souls of ours, to bring repentance from sin and the holiness without which no one will see God. We ask that You would cause these things to grip us and give us understanding for Christ's sake. Amen. You might just want to slip your shoes off your feet this morning because we really are standing on holy ground. John 17 is one of those passages that kind of makes my knees weak as I consider trying to preach it. The simple fact that here in this most intimate moment in our Savior's life, we get to listen in as He is praying to His Father. This is indeed a high and holy moment. Martin Luther said, This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer as Jesus opens the depths of His heart both in reference to us and to His Father and He pours them all out. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Traditionally, this prayer has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus because... Here, just as the high priest would go before God as he prepared to offer the great offering on the Day of Atonement and offer up prayers first for himself and also for the people, so Jesus prepares for the cross here, praying first for himself, that's verses 1 to 5, then for his disciples in verses 6 to 19, and finally for us who will believe through the message of the apostles in verses 20 to 26. And so if you're looking for an outline of this prayer of Jesus, there it is. Verse 1 to 5, He prays for Himself. Verses 6 to 19, He prays for His disciples. Verses 20 to 26, He prays for us who will come to believe the message. Well, this morning we're going to focus our attention specifically on these first five verses as Jesus begins to pray for Himself. And here there are three key concepts that I want you to see that sort of form the outline of this brief section. 
There is glory. Father, glorify Your Son. Verse 1. There is eternal life. In verse 3. And then there is Christ's finished work. In verse 4. And so... Ask the Lord now, even for your own soul, to to hear what Jesus has to say to us in this prayer. And the, the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus prays, first of all, that the Father would glorify the Son in the giving of salvation. That's verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. And so picture Jesus standing there with His disciples. He's just finished giving them what we call His farewell address. That's chapter 13 to 16, explaining to them all that is about to happen. And now as they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, this is not the prayer of Gethsemane, this happens before Gethsemane. As they make their way toward the Garden, Jesus begins to pray for Himself. Father... The hour has come. The hour. Now what hour is he talking about? Do you remember? Throughout John's Gospel, he's been preparing us for this. Jesus has been talking often about that hour that is coming, that that critical moment in all of history when Christ the Son will lay down His life as a willing sacrifice for the sins of His people. Back in John 10.17, He said, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So Jesus says, Father, that time has now arrived. Glorify me as I lay down my life. Now what an odd thing that is to pray. We might expect Jesus to say, Father, strengthen me. Father, help me as I go to the cross. But glorify me? What does glorify even mean here? Because we usually think of glory, we think in terms of cheers and praise and applause breaking out. Yay, we won! But it's Jesus who is about to be broken and beaten and hung on a cross and humiliated. How is that glory? Well, it's glory because this is the way through the suffering and humiliation of the cross that Jesus will win the victory that we need over sin and restore us into the relationship with the Father that we, through sin, have lost. So much so is this what He's doing. So much so is this true that the cross itself is going to become for Christians not just the way Jesus wins glory in salvation. The cross itself becomes the very throne of His glory in salvation. We look at the cross now and we rejoice because it is there that our Savior's love is put on its fullest display. D.A. Carson said the very event by which the Son was being lifted up in horrible ignominy and shame was that for which He will now be praised around the world by men and women whose sins that He has borne. Think about it. When you think, as a Christian, when you think about what Jesus has done for you, where does your mind inevitably go? I'll bet it goes to the cross and the empty tomb. 
Because that's where the beauty of His sacrificial love is most clearly seen. To know that it was there that He died for me. That He loved me and gave Himself up for me on that cross. I mean, it's no wonder that Paul in Galatians 6 says that we glory in the cross. We boast in it. We're not ashamed of it. We rejoice in it. We celebrate the cross. Because that's where our Redeemer won our redemption. And so Jesus prays, Father, glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. So not only is Jesus glorified in laying out His life on the cross, but notice the Father is to be glorified there as well. Philippians 2, after talking about Jesus' utter humiliation, says, therefore God exalted Him to the praise and the glory of God. And so Jesus isn't hanging out there on His own. Jesus didn't come up with this on His own. He was sent by the Father for the very purpose of purchasing redemption for His people. Right? I mean, who can forget John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have the everlasting life He will win. And so the Son came in obedience to the Father to accomplish what the two of them, along with the Holy Spirit, had planned for all eternity, the redemption of a people for the praise of God's glory. And that's what verse 2 of this prayer is actually about. Look at it. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. So how is this glory going to be gotten? How will the Father be glorified and the Son be glorified? They will be glorified in the sending of Christ to be, two things here, our Savior and our Lord. First of all, Jesus, notice, is sent as Lord. That is, the Father gave Him authority over every human being who exists or has ever existed. That's what verse 2 says at the beginning. You gave Him authority over all flesh over all humanity. Understand, understand, whether you choose to acknowledge Him or not, Jesus came into this world as the one holding authority over the life of every human being who has existed, does exist, or ever will exist. This means that every person on this planet's final destiny is in the hands of Jesus Christ alone. He alone determines who will be saved, who will be lost. It's Him. John 5.22, Jesus says, The Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. Do you remember, in fact, that scene in Daniel 7.14 which refers to Jesus as He, the Son of Man, steps onto the scene. The prophet Daniel says, And to Him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages would serve Him. Jesus Christ as Lord is our first and most important confession. Just before He returned to heaven, Jesus tells His disciples in Matthew 28.18, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Me. How much? All of it. Every person who has ever lived or ever will live is under the absolute authority of Jesus Christ the Lord. No exceptions. 
Okay, why? To what purpose? Why has the Father entrusted into the hands of Christ every person who has ever existed? Because, here's the second thing, the Father sent the Son to be our Savior. And He gave Him a people to save. Read verse 2 again. You'll see that there are two things there. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh, there's His Lordship, in order to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. There is His Saviorship. And you'll notice there is a bit of a mystery involved in this statement, one that we need to be sure we understand. You have given them into His hands in order to be the Savior of those whom you gave Him. Do you understand that when Christ goes to the cross to lay down His life and death, it is not going to be an open-ended kind of thing, meant for no one in particular, that it will be a specific sacrifice aimed at the salvation of those whom God has given Christ in order to save. Uh, the Bible uses the term the elect for those whom God has entrusted to Christ, those that, that, that God in Christ has set aside from before the foundation of the world, handed over to Jesus, that He might carry them with Him to the cross to be their representative, to die in their place as a substitute, and thus to win eternally their salvation. And so when Christ goes to the cross to give His life, He is giving it for a specific people, a people known to Him, a people loved, as Romans 8 says, by Him. Not just to a people in general, hoping that somehow some might be saved, but specifically for us, ensuring that indeed we will be saved. Remember, the death of Christ is a substitution. He takes the place of those for whom He dies and to whom He will give this salvation. And in order for that substitution to work, it has to be specific. Christ the high priest must have you with Him, so to speak, as He dies in your place. For it is only in dying specifically for you and your sins that this death is an effective substitute and therefore a sacrifice. And so Jesus had said in John 6.37, All of those the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So two things we need to see here on, on the way to understanding this magnificent thing Christ is doing. First, understand again, Christ died for a specific people. He died for those entrusted to Him from before the foundation of the world. The Father gave them to the Son and said, Son, go save them. And Christ said, I will go and be their substitute. And when He died, He really did save them. Second, the way we know who those people are is when we see them repent and believe the Gospel. Don't fear the doctrine of election as though this is somehow putting up barriers to salvation. This is the very hope of salvation. This is the beautiful truth. This is the promise that all those entrusted to Christ will indeed hear the Gospel, open, be opened in their heart, be given life in their death, will repent, will believe, will shout, will sing, and become His forever. John 6.39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all those He has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. Okay, again, but how do we know who they are? Because they're the ones who hear the gospel and believe. John 6, verse 40, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so, the gospel is offered freely to all. 
knowing that all who believe will indeed be saved with the assurance that those who do believe were chosen by grace and given to Christ from before the foundation of the world. There are, in fact, I want you to notice in this statement of Jesus in verse 2, there are three gifts mentioned here. First, Christ is given authority over all humanity. Second, Christ is given a specific people to save. And then third, He gives that people eternal life as a gift. And when He gives that gift, when you receive that gift by faith, when you trust in Christ, you come to understand it is all of grace, not of works. And so if it's all of grace, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And in this finished work of salvation, Christ gets the glorious Savior, God gets the glory as the sender of the Savior, and we humbly receive what He has done. So Jesus prays here on the eve of the cross, Father, let me bring You glory by saving the people You've entrusted to me and ensuring that they receive this gift of eternal life. Then, notice verse 3, Jesus explains what that eternal life is. And He explains it in terms of a personal, intimate knowledge and relationship with God. Look at verse 3. Listen, I often tell you you should memorize a verse. Dear, dear Christian, you should memorize this verse. If you haven't memorized this verse, write it down on a card. Carry it with you. Put it in your phone. Put an alarm on it until you know this one by heart. Because it is, it is that important to understand what this eternal life is. And this is eternal life. What is it, Jesus that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. So ask the question, what is eternal life? And the answer is, eternal life is knowing God. You see, we tend to think of eternal life in terms of duration, a life that does not end. Jesus describes eternal life in terms of relation, a life lived with God. Certainly, It is a life that has no end, but that's really a secondary feature. The real gift of eternal life is that we get to know and walk with God now and forever. One author said it this way, Eternal life, therefore, is the life of heaven beginning in us now, granted by God at the moment of our coming to saving faith. William Barclay writes, To enter into eternal life is to experience here and now something of the splendor and the majesty and the joy and the peace and the holiness which are characteristic of the life of God. So ask the question, what does this salvation bring to us? And the answer is, it brings us into the life of God. Henry Skugel appeared and said, the life of God in the soul of men. Which means, knowing Him, knowing Him, as an adopted son or daughter knows their adoptive father, walking with Him, relating to Him, loving Him and being loved by Him, having fellowship with Him. This is the gift that Christ wins for us. That that we who were God's enemies might become His friends. No, 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 better than that. That we might become sons and daughters of God who know and walk with Him, who treasure and delight in Him. This is a precious gift beyond description. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
says it this way. He says, The Christian begins to realize that God is indeed his Father, that the hairs of his head are all numbered, and that his relationship to God is not something mechanical. It is experiential. That, of course, leads to a sense of dependence upon God and the consciousness that as time passes, we are in His hands. And that further means that we begin to look to Him for strength, for power, for everything. Dear one, this is the reason Christ died. This is what He came to give. In fact, this is what your life is for. J.I. Packer in his monumental book, Knowing God, which again I highly recommend, says this, very beginning of chapter 3, I believe. He says, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems begin to fall into place of their own accord. Listen, whoever you are, your biggest need in life, I know you've got needs, I know there are things on your mind, but your biggest need in life is to know God. And by that I mean really know Him, intimately know Him. That is exactly what Jesus brings to those who trust in Him. He brings a new life lived in love with God that grows and expands and sweetens and deepens from here to eternity. Listen, this is life's great adventure. I love to say that and I send out birthday cards to all of our members and children and often on a child's card I'll simply write, I pray that you will know life's greatest adventure, which is to know and walk with Christ. And what Jesus is saying to us here is, and what I'm saying to you is, pursue this. (laughs) Make this the passion of your soul, because this is what you were made for. This is the one thing in life that will satisfy your soul now and forever, and it begins with Jesus. Notice that in verse 3. As He defines eternal life, He says, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. A couple of thoughts here. First, the God that you get to know in Jesus, let's just say it is the only God worth knowing. Psalm 18.30, get my psalms straight here, says, this God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. This God is worth knowing because this God, as Jesus says here, is the one true God, the only true God. That means He is the only God who truly is. All other gods men worship are, by definition, idols. They're the work of a man's hand. They're figments of our overactive imaginations. Calvin said that the human heart is by nature an idol factory. We're always creating new gods to worship. In the past, those gods were often made of silver and gold, wood and stone, but today they're usually made of the mirror or the selfie stick. We worship 
our own autonomy. That's the big word today. My choice, my decisions. We imagine in our foolishness that we are self-creators in some way. That we're able to fashion our own identities, looking down in ourselves to find truth and thus always being deceived. Because every self-conceived God is a false God, a lying God, a fool's God. Romans 1, 22 Paul says, claiming to be wise, speaking of us in our culture, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And so the world gives you lies and deceptions by the bucketful as it teaches you to worship yourself. Christ alone gives you the one true God who can satisfy your soul because you were made for Him. And second then, you can only know this one true God through His Son Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Again, notice there in verse 3 this tight connection between God the Father and God the Son. How has God the Father made Himself known to us here in our sin? By stepping into this world in the person of His own Son. He is... The Bible says in Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God can be known, but He can only be known through Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says that God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so you come to know God through Christ. You come to know Christ through faith. And as you come to know Christ through faith, you're reaching the very goal of life, which is the knowledge of God. And that is the heart of the Christian faith, knowing God. That's why John's first epistle, 1 John, ends with these words in 1 John 5.20. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. So again, this is Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays that the Father will let His glory be seen as He lays down His life to bring us into a living relationship with the Father. That takes us into the third thing to see in this prayer this morning. And that is that as He wraps up praying for Himself, Jesus rejoices in His finished work and prepares to return to the Father's glorious presence. Look at that in verse 4 and 5. This is amazing. Verse 4 I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before with you before the world existed. Not only about you, but to me, as I read that, it sounds like we're listening in and overhearing a private conversation between the Father and the Son. But of course, we're meant to overhear it, but because this is meant to give us confidence, we who are Christians, and to give us great joy. Because here we find that the work Jesus came to do is not in doubt. It is finished. It is 
completed. It is done. Notice in verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Okay, all of you homeschoolers, those are past tense verbs. It means that they've already taken place. It means that the work necessary for our salvation in Christ is not something yet to be done. It is something that has been done. In fact, look at that word accomplished in your, in your Bible there. Verse 4, uh, other translations may say completed or finished. But the word that he uses in the original is the word teleo, which means to bring something to a complete finish, to bring it to the, to the end of its completed task. Now, you might not recognize this verb teleo in that form, but I bet many of you know it in its perfect form, which we often sing in a song. It's what Jesus cries from the cross in John 19.30 when He says, to die." It is finished. Teleo is just the present first person form of tetelestai when Jesus says, it is finished. So Jesus here is saying, Father, I have glorified You on earth by finishing the work You gave Me to do. Now, what's He talking about there? Because the cross is still hours away. The cross hasn't happened yet when Jesus says this. So how is His work finished? Well, it's because He is talking about a specific aspect of His work here. He is talking about His work of living a life of perfect righteousness in obedience to the Father's commands. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now, do you remember? That's one of our big problems. (laughs) Um, We have not always done the things that are pleasing to God. Right? Just the opposite. I can, I can tell you that even this day I've not been pleasing to God with every thought, every action, every word. I wish I could say that I had been, but I know better. And so because this is us, we in ourselves lack the record of perfect righteousness that we must have to stand before God. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord... Only he uh, who may stand in his holy place, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Is that you? Is it? Have you in your life offered God a perfect obedience? I'll answer for you. No, you haven't. And so even if your sins somehow managed to be forgiven, you would still be lacking what is necessary to stand and be accepted by God. You would be lacking a record of spotless righteousness. You need perfect righteousness to stand in God's presence. And it is that record of spotless righteousness that Jesus says He just spent 33 years accomplishing on your behalf. This is called the active obedience of Christ. Not only will Jesus go to the cross to pay the debt for our sins, but Jesus also earned the record of spotless righteousness we must have to stand before God. He earned it throughout His life doing all that the Father commands, refusing to do anything that the Father forbids. 
I mean, that's what we should have done ourselves, but didn't. But He did do it. And now, when we by faith are joined to Christ, when we come and we trust Him for what He has done, God credits us with Christ's righteousness. What Christ has earned, we receive so that we are counted worthy to stand in His presence forever and be accepted into God's fellowship because we stand in the completed righteousness of Jesus. And so Jesus, He says, has completed the work of living a life of perfect, God-honoring righteousness. Jesus has earned the right as a man to stand in God's holy presence with clean hands and a pure heart. So that when now, as you and I are joined to Christ by faith, He shares the credit of that righteousness with us. Do you understand? This is what we talk about when we say justified by faith. This is what we mean. To be justified is to be counted righteous. It is to receive the credit for Christ's righteousness as your own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. There's His death on the cross. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There's the imputation or the gift of Christ's righteousness. I mean, you talk about glory. We are saved by Christ's death and His life. By the payment of sin and the gift of righteousness. Oh, listen, no wonder we love Him and call Him Savior. But then notice, finally, with His work now finished, Jesus looks forward to returning to His former glory at the Father's right hand. Did you see that? Verse 5. And now, Father, my work's done. Now, glorify me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. And notice this. Notice, Jesus has always shared the Father's glory and now is returning to the Father's side to share it again. Tells us two things. First, Jesus can share the Father's glory because Jesus shares the Father's deity. He's not just the Son of God. He is God the Son. And as the Son, He does something no one else can do or could ever do. He shares fully in the Father's blazing glory as God. He shares the Father's Godness. Do you understand? Sharing in the glory of God is something God absolutely forbids of any creature, anything made. Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is My name. My glory I will give to no other. And yet Jesus, here with bald face, prays to the Father, asking to receive the very glory of the Father as His own. How can He do that? Well, He can do it because He's God the Son. He can do it because the glory belongs to Him every bit as much as it belongs to His Father. Do you remember back in John 1 verse 14, we saw that Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says, And we have seen His glory, glorious the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the glory of God. He left that glory for a time and now He's returning to it. Because, secondly, secondly, Christ is and has always existed as God. (laughs) 
Notice what he says again in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is mystery. We're treading on a holy place, but this is a reference to Christ's pre-existence. Father, let me return to that place of glory in Your presence that I shared with You for all of eternity past before anything had ever been made. Again, do you remember how John's Gospel begins? The first two verses of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and later we learn that that Word is indeed Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so Jesus, the Word, existed in His pre-incarnate state in the presence of God as the Son of God with the Spirit of God in the mystery of the Trinity always existing in this warm relationship of love. Before He took on flesh to dwell among us, He was God living in the presence of the Father with the Son forever. But to come here and be our Savior, He chose to step down from that realm of glory for a time. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 talks about how He humbled Himself, emptied Himself of of, of this glorious place, came in humility and was suffering and dying upon the humiliation of the cross. That doesn't mean He ceased to be God or ceased to be glorious, but His glory for a time was hidden. He couldn't be seen. He walked the streets of Jerusalem and people looked and thought He was just a man like you or me. But now, that time of humiliation is at an end. Christ will go to the cross and pay the final sacrifice for our sins. Then He will rise triumphantly from the grave. And then what? You know your theology, right? He dies. He rises. Then what? Well, that's what He's praying right here. Then the Christ who died and rose again will ascend to the Father's glorious right hand there to represent us before God. There to make sure that His finished work is applied to us so that all those for whom He died, all whom He brings to faith, will indeed be brought into the knowledge of God which is eternal life to enjoy with Him in glory forever and ever and ever. Friend, that is His glory. That is why we worship Him. That is why you should place your trust in Him. You say, well, I don't know if I'm one of those or not. Don't ask that question. Ask this question. Do I believe? Do I trust that Jesus did this for those who trust Him? If you trust that He did this, you're His. Come to Him. Believe in Him. Rest upon Him. Bank on His promises. Take Him at His word. See Him for who He is. Understand His gloriousness and His sacrifice. And come, no holds barred, surrendering all. Christ Jesus, You're my Lord and Savior, and I will follow You if it costs me every relationship I have, every friendship I've ever known, every stick of furniture in my house, because having You and this glory forever is worth losing everything here. Christ, I surrender to You. Let that be the prayer of every person in this room. Lord Jesus, we've only just begun to consider this prayer of Yours. This glorious, high priestly offering. Placing Yourself fully at Your Father's disposal. Anticipating the return to glory. Confirming that Your death will be effective for the salvation of every one of those You take with You. That none of them shall be lost. That none of them can be lost. That Your work effectively saves all of the elect, 
all of those entrusted to you, all of those who will believe in you and put their faith in you, that it is a sure and complete salvation because you are a sure and complete Savior. So even now, awaken faith. Even now, revive flagging faith. Even now, fix our eyes on Jesus that we may glory in Him and receive what only He can give by faith. We pray in Your magnificent name. Amen.